0: Alright guys, welcome back to this week's Extra Rounds Podcast. I'm Aliyah Zepeda. Last week I said my co-host Mike Dice would be back this week. I lied. He's at UFC 208, uh, covering UFC 208, which takes place in Brooklyn, New York, this Saturday. Last week he was in Houston covering the UFC Fight Night there and the Super Bowl. Very, very cool. I misspoke last week. Uh, He's he's doing a kick-ass job uh, out east, just like he did down south. Uh, so it'll just be uh, me and, uh, and Richard here. But we've got uh, two great guests joining us. We've got Ian McCall, who has been for a very, very long time one of the best anime fighters off the, in the world. He hasn't fought for two years in what has to be one of the worst in recent anime history. We're going to have him on to talk a little bit about that. He is on the UFC 208, 208 card. Um, he's in the middle of a weight cut. It's pretty amazing that he's taking time. Just heard from him a few minutes ago a in the text. To we'll we're also have uh, Ben Velasquez, who's also out from San Diego. He's from the University of Ben Velasquez, is a, among other things, a strength and conditioning coach, but he's also uh, been working specifically on uh, on neural health and on concussion, uh, post-concussion syndrome. Um, really, really interested to talk with him. Uh, he's he's worked with the likes of Chris Weidman, uh, former UFC middleweight champion, and also box former boxing welterweight world champion Timothy Bradley, in addition to a host of other athletes at a lot of other levels. Uh, so we're going to get to them in just a moment. Uh, probably yeah, probably about fifteen minutes or so. First up though, we're going to get to some questions. Last week we we started a, a mailbag a mailbag uh, segment, and uh, we've got some uh, we got some questions. From you. I got two specifically that we want to highlight. Those uh, you could reach us in a lot of different ways. We're on Twitter at Extra Rounds. Always feel free to send us messages there uh, or tag us in with questions. We also have our, our phone line where you can leave us a voicemail. 815-570-3923 is a the number there to leave us a message, 815-570-3923. We do play uh, messages from there and answer your questions. Um, we also have the extra rounds podcast at gmail.com, which is where both of our questions come from this week. That's the extra rounds podcast at gmail.com. Our first question is from uh, and, and Eugene. excuse me if I mispronounce your name. I'm gonna do my best here. But Eugene Timont. Eugene uh, writes your interview with Rick Glenn. I listen to your, listen to your guys' interview with Rick Glenn and it it was much better than bloody elbows. Uh, BE had a 16-year-old kid interview him, and he was so fascinated with Rick leaving his Costco job. It was the kid's main focus. Wow, blew my mind. But then again, more power to the kid for doing the interview. I think it was a kid. LOL. I like insight on how a fighter's training is going and improvements at Costco for 10 minutes. But anyway, do you guys do predictions kind of like Connor and Zane? if If so, share them with me for the Buffalo card. Thanks. Which is UFC 210. So we'll get to Buffalo. We'll get to UFC 210 in a second. I got a I got a few predictions for you, Eugene. Thanks for watching the show, listening to it. Thanks for writing in, uh, and thanks for. I'm glad you enjoyed our conversation with Rick Glenn last week. I will say this though, in defense of Bloody Elbow, it was a fine outlet. Uh, I didn't check out this interview. I don't know the the young man who uh, that your a uh, young woman that you're referencing did the interview. But I will tell you what. Absolutely more power to them if they're 16 and doing uh, professional interviews. That's awesome. It's even younger than I started. I remember when I started working, I was probably 21, and I was the youngest person I knew in the industry. And you get a lot of flack for being young. And, uh, you know, the good work justifies itself. And also, hey, I was fascinated. I was fascinated by, by Rick saying he, he left a job. I didn't spend a ton of time in it, but I've done interviews where I focus a lot on that work, um, second job, uh, fighting life balance. So I think that sounds like a fascinating topic for me personally. So I, I don't blame, I don't blame this. I don't blame Bloody Elbow for going into into more detail on that. You, you only got a certain amount of time. There's infinite angles you could take in anyone's life. And uh, I think that's an interesting one. Rick did talk a little bit about that, how he is able to focus now on fighting full-time. That's a, that's a hell of a thing. You know, you don't have in other mainstream sports like we did maybe 40, 50 years ago in baseball and football and basketball, you don't have uh, you don't have that uh, in baseball, football, and basketball anymore where you have athletes in the offseason or throughout the year uh, working a second job, working at Goldblast or some other place like that. But you got that in MMA. You got that in boxing to a certain extent as well. And that's a fascinating thing. So um, I'm sure that's a good interview. I'm glad you liked ours as well. To the Buffalo card, UFC 210, I believe. Uh, heck of a card. They've only announced uh, maybe, I think, five or six fights on that, but they're all pretty good ones. So there's a few... A few ones that I'm most focused on, obviously the main event, Daniel Cormier defending his light heavyweight championship against Anthony Rumble Johnson in a rematch. The first one you all will remember was a slobber knocker, Anthony Johnson, with his incredible striking power, looked to almost put Daniel Cormier out, separated from his consciousness very early in the fight. Cormier withstood all of that stayed in the fight eventually ground down took down anthony johnson and forced them to submit they're rematching again i've got to go with the champion in this one and it's a it's an interesting thing to me because i actually don't think anyone is a quote-unquote good or solid pick of a, or a matchup against anthony rumble johnson's merely because he can do so much damage with one strike I think he's capable of putting anyone out, including Daniel Cormier. So it wouldn't surprise me if that happens. I do think if that doesn't happen, you've got to go with Daniel Cormier. Cormier is, you know, he's he's, he's older than Johnson. He's one of the older fighters in the UFC. In addition to being one of the better fighters in the UFC. And he's been talking a lot about, hey, Anthony Johnson wanted out of that fight. When he couldn't bully me around, when he couldn't knock me out right away like he promised he was going to do. Because Rumble did promise that. When he couldn't do that, he kind of... Broke mentally, to Cormier has said of Johnson, and he looked for an out. and gave up his neck, and DC sees that as a, as a pattern with Anthony Johnson. Um, I think Cormier is right that if he doesn't get put away by Anthony Johnson in the first two rounds, he stands a good chance of winning. It just so happens that Anthony Johnson stands a good chance of putting anyone out that he would fight in like three to four different weight classes in the first two rounds. That said, I'll go with the superior all-around fighter. I'll go with the guy who's Proven, he can win big, biggest fights Talk about the guy who's proven his conditioning, um, and who is the superior grappler, in Daniel Cormier. That's my pick. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I like another submission, maybe the fourth or fifth round. Chris Weidman is also going to be fighting Gegard Musasi. Weidman fighting once again in his home state of New York, this time upstate. Last time in November, he fought at UFC 205 in Manhattan at Madison Square Garden and was winning the fight. To Yo, against Yoel Romero, but then got caught with a flying knee and uh, and lost in dramatic fashion. He's coming back pretty quick. Diego Mousasi is on a heck of a roll. I think that's a phenomenal fight. I think it's a hard fight to pick because I think both, either man is capable of winning on any given night. Mousasi is a bit slicker and, and more well-rounded as a, as a striker. Chris Weidman is, is technically sound, though, and once he grabs a hold of you, he can usually put anyone on their back. I think Chris Weidman, if his if he's recovered enough from from that from that bad knee, uh, and if he's actually had enough time to to rest his head and put in a training camp where he can he can do what he needs to do and not really affect his his reflexes negatively. I like that fight for Chris Weidman. I think he can. He can score with his strikes, uh, but I also think he can get on the inside. He could press Musasi, uh, and he could uh, he could put the fight on the ground. And I think his jiu-jitsu is good enough to stay out of Musasi's excellent, excellent uh, submission game. So I'll go with Chris Weidman uh, by decision, although I, I think either guy could win there. Uh, the other fight I'm most looking forward to so far for UFC 210 in Buffalo is Shane Burgos versus Charles Rosa. Rosa's a friend of the show. I'm sure Shane's a, a wonderful dude as well. I'm going to go with Rosa. Rosa has been training almost nonstop at his home, an American top team in South Florida, traveling the world to train more as well. Even though it's been a long time since he's fought, he hasn't stopped training. I think he's been training smart from what I hear from his coaches and his teammates, so he's not been grinding his his body and his mind into the ground. but He's been been working a lot of skills, uh, skill improvement, a lot of technique, and um, staying fresh, staying sharp. I think it's a good matchup for Rosa. I think Rosa has some some good striking, and I think we haven't yet seen the best of his striking in the octagon, the best of what he's capable of. He's trained in the Netherlands with Stefan Birkenpohl. He recently went to Thailand to train some Muay Thai. I bet he got some good looks. I bet he got some um, you know one or two new things that he's been working on and feels real confident with. And I bet his submission game is really really excellent submission game, especially especially as guillotines, is also continuing to, to improve. He hasn't been in the game that long. So I think Charles Rosa at featherweight is a guy that we're going to see look better and better each fight. That We'll see a lot of improvement from one fight to the next. Um, so I'll pick Rosa there as well. I'll say third round submission, Charles Rosa. Those are my partial UFC 210, UFC Buffalo picks. Eugene, Eugene Terramonti, again, thanks so much for writing in. Please, if you have uh, questions, you guys want to holler at us, the extra rounds podcast at gmail.com is a good place to do it. You can also phone in at 815 570 3923. Gotta get new eyeglasses. Can't see my own screen too well. But that's a number. You can hit us up on Twitter at extra rounds. We got, I think we got time. Yeah, we've got time for another question. So we just debuted this mailbag feature last week the extra rounds mailbag. Uh, although we had taken questions before from the from the phone line, uh, and we certainly do it uh, off of uh, the Sports Illustrated Facebook page. If you're watching us live now, you're watching us on Sports Illustrated MMA's Facebook page. Leave comments there. We will we certainly try to get to those as well. But now we have the formal Extra Rounds Mailbag segment uh, reoccurring, and uh, it's been a fun response from you guys. Uh, we're getting tweets. Uh, we're getting emails. We're getting messages on Facebook. um This, this next question, this next subject, is piggybacking off of a question we got last week from Brad Stein about strikers, in his view, kind of coming into prominence or even dominance in in the UFC and, and why that is. And we talked about a number of structural reasons why modern mixed martial arts. Favors striking as a tactic. Uh, we see plenty of excellent grapplers uh, as champions, top contenders, elite fighters in the UFC. They've had to learn to strike. We've talked about things like rounds. Uh, we talked about things like cultural things like s- uh, stand ups or clinch breaks. That referees insidiously insist on um, forcing on a fight artificially. I, I that's, we'll, we'll talk about this forever and we'll talk about this more often, but that's just. It's something I have a real problem with. We're talking about round lengths. We also talked, kind of as an aside, about gloves. So, if you're new to MMA, or even if you just started watching in the last 15 years, you may not realize that uh, modern mixed martial arts fighters didn't always wear these little four ounce gloves that we see them wearing. They originally, in the UFCs, fought bare knuckle. And it certainly looks primal, looks more brutal, it might even lead to more superficial cuts. You're getting knuckle on, on skin there. But gloves do not protect the head. They actually protect the hand, and the wrist, and the fingers. There's so many bones in one's hand. Um, if you've had the, the fortune slash misfortune of, of punching someone in, in the head, you know that that can go real wrong uh, for you as well. <laughs> if you don't hit them in a sweet spot here, temple, nose to the chin, maybe back to the head. You can bust your hand really, really easily. This forehead is a lot stronger than, than this fist right here, right? So the striking strategy of early UFC fighters, early modern MMA fighters on the whole, when they didn't have gloves was much different than it is now. To put it broadly and generally, it could be characterized as um, less licentiousness, right? So now fighters feel that they can punch with much more impunity because of the gloves. We've talked about this last week, when you're taped up before a fight by someone who knows what they're doing and then you're gloved up, though the, the tape strands and stuff are, are meant to mimic uh, and reinforce uh, the, the ligaments and the bones in your hand uh, and the tendons. And you really, really feel like you can punch through uh, through a wall. And you might not be able to do that. Drywall, for sure. <laughs> Solid wall, maybe not. But I tell you, it really, really helps support the hand. So you can punch with much more impunity with less concern for injuring your hand when you've got the current taping and glove system. And that struck what our listeners, uh, Jim Freeman. Jim wrote, and we'll we'll try to touch on it a little bit here. It's a big question. Um, Jim followed up on, on us touching on gloves Last week, he says, Question for Extra Rounds Podcast. You talked about how wrapping hands leads to fighters hitting harder. We don't wear pads on our shins, knees, or elbows during fights and training. Obviously, fighters do. Um, Why did 4-ounce gloves come into use in MMA and when? I have come to believe gloves make the sport more brutal rather than less. Is there any chance of MMA going gloveless? What would that take? It seems like strikers are just getting better and better. At what point do we come to realize that it might actually be better for the fighters to have to measure their force and place their strikes to avoid injury, without gloves? Jim, really well put que- series of questions. Uh, clearly, I'm on the same page as you. You you put this, you put this really nicely. Like, at what point do we have to realize it might actually be better for fighters? In the sense of brain trauma to their opponents, better for fighters to have their opponents measure their force and place their strikes to avoid injury without, I'll add, taping and you, you roll gloves. Uh, I, I think we need to be talking about that. Uh, do I think it's likely that we're going to move away from gloves? No, I don't think it's very likely. I don't think it's, unfortunately, I don't think it's very likely, much in the same way that I don't think it's likely that the NFL is going to start playing. Without helmets, even though scientists recently came out a couple years ago, there were a group of scientists, I forget out of which university, came up with a study um, using physics and using kind of, kind of, I'll I'll say this, it wasn't their work, but kind of using a cultural kind of study and and psychological or uh, kind of a group psychological or cultural analysis to say, hey, it would be actually safer if NFL players. Play the games without a helmet. Why? It sounds certainly counterintuitive. Well, the padding that's there, as advanced as it is, doesn't actually uh, do much to stop the brain from being shook around when it's hit with a great deal of force. Uh, and furthermore, they all, these scientists also pointed to the fact that um, the way fighters, have, I mean, the way uh, NFL players played and the way football players generally have played, as helmets grew more supposedly sophisticated in their cushioning and things and their protection changed a great deal as well. You started seeing uh, folks throw themselves head first, like use their whole body as a projectile with with their head leading the way. There's a false sense of security with the helmets. I think there's a false sense of um, security with gloves. The gloves and the taping will all protect your hand. That's a real sense of security. But to the extent that the the wider viewing audience, the fandom in this in the MMA community believes or at boxing as well believe that the gloves themselves protect Opponent's heads that they just don't. Um, So yeah, I think you're right. It it may seem counterintuitive, uh, but Jim is right on the money. That um, sometimes added cushioning just makes serves to make a sport more brutal. Um, How? Well, you you know, if if I'm fighting a dude uh, and and he can hit me a lot more times without breaking his his hand, hit me in the head a lot more times without breaking his hand, I may very well end up taking a lot more blows uh, to my head. Uh, and that gloved hand doesn't do anything to protect my brain from me getting rattled around. Uh, whereas if if he didn't have his fist so well protected, if it was more realistic towards a, a self-defense situation out there in the world outside of sport, you may have to be more selective. You might be have, to, have to be more conservative with his, his shot selection because you don't just want to be punching heads and, and punching elbows and punching hips uh, if, you're not, if you don't have that extra protection. So I don't think it's likely... Um, Because, one, it looks different. I think MMA looks very different already compared to what many of us in the Western world are used to with combats. We're we're fighting on the ground, we're kicking, kicking the legs. That's different enough. Also, I think business, the business of it, Jim, is an issue. One of the biggest reasons, and this is just a pet theory of mine. I haven't surveyed it. This is unscientific. One of the reasons that the NFL might never or they have gave no indication they ever seriously considered doing away with helmets despite scientists suggesting that it would be much, much safer and despite the NFL claiming to be more concerned with, with brain health recently after lawsuits and, and, and medical research coming out talking about CTE is because so much of the money that is made in football has to do with branding and so much of the branding comes from helmets. They are not just iconic and you know nice feeling we think of helmets and stuff they make money off of that i remember being a kid going to baskin robbins and buying ice cream out of a baseball or football helmet uh, upside down uh that you know that, that wasn't like charity they made money off of that they licensed that but baskin robbins had to pay for the right to use those logos and those logos for teams um, that are billion-dollar businesses, sometimes don't know the them themselves to say nothing of the Collective League, make too much money off of licensing um, uniforms and even helmets um, for, for that to ever be considered. Uh, the UFC and other organizations also, of course, brand their clubs as well. They make money off of that. I don't know precisely how much they make money off of that. So I think the cultural reticence to open our mind towards things that we haven't yet considered or things that look different uh, combined with business interests, callous business interests that don't actually care about fighter health, meet together such that it will be very, very difficult uh, to change that. However, we should talk about it. We should keep talking about it. We, um, we will to keep talking about it. And and, uh, and if it starts changing in, in gyms, it might start changing in a in, in larger world. But it's not going to happen without conversation. So to that end, I really appreciate the question. You're continuing the conversation, uh, Jim Freeman. Um, Jim Freeman and uh, Eugene thank you so much for the questions. This week's mailbag, again, you can guys can call us at 815-570-3923. Leave us a voicemail. Uh, if we dig your question, we'll, we might play it and uh, answer it. You can also write us, as these gentlemen did, at the roundspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, anytime we get some good discussion, thought-provoking questions, um, we'll read them and we'll, we'll address them. So we're going to go... Move on from from the mailbag. It's about time to call Ian McCall. Ian McCall is one of the best flyweights in the world, one of the best MMA fighters pound for pound in the world, and has been for some time. And uh, he's fighting this Saturday at usc 208. Fingers crossed. The reason I say that is he in the last two years has had four fights uh, pulled out under from underneath him. Two of them the week of the fight. Uh, having to do with his own sickness, and twice I believe, and and, and other times fighters, not his opponents, not be able to make it. So we won't jinx it. We're not gonna <laughs> bring that up in that kind of way uh, specifically with Ian. But we're gonna give him a call um, and see if he's around and chat with him. And then we'll have Ben Velasquez afterwards, who's gonna talk about concussions. He's worked with the likes of Chris Weidman and Tim Bradley. Uh, that should be a fun one. But first, we got Ian a call. We'll see if Ian's still available. Like he said, he would be. Give it a go. Bueno. Ian, this is Elias with X-Rounds Podcast. Thanks for making time, brother.
1: No problem, no problem.
0: So, I want to jump right in, man. This is the first time I'm actually getting to to talk to you like this, you know, one-on-one proper. Um, but I was actually at, I was covering, um, was it UFC 183, the last time you, you actually had a, a fight. And in addition to covering the show, I was doing this feature on, on, uh, on cutting weight. I was shadowing Joe Lozon, who was also on the card, and I remember when we went back there. I think it was probably Thursday, and uh, he he was chatting with you. I think I said hello or something. But uh, you know, one of the things that struck struck like Joe and everyone in his team and myself, and I wrote about it later, like much much later when it was an issue. I believe, and I could be wrong, Ian, but it looked like you, uh, like 24 hours before. Having to weigh in at 126, and you made weight. Your opponent didn't, but you did. Um, You were weighing 143 pounds, and like I remember writing, I'm like, listen, fans that don't get this, Ian McCall was at 143, ripped, you know, in shape like we always see him, you know. But 24 hours later, you know, he made weight at 126. Uh, I I don't, I don't think people always appreciate what making weight entails. And uh, I was gonna ask you the times in this last couple years. Where, like, I know you got sick at least one of these times. Is that at all having to do Yeah, twice. This, this, yeah, twice. Okay, so it was two of those times. Did getting sick, I mean, that, is that not related to the craziness you have to do in a weight cut, like, right after you just had a really intense training camp?
1: Oh, yeah, it's horrible. See, the thing was, in Brazil, when I ended up in the hospital, I, I already had a blood infection. Um, and I knew that, you know, and I. I I said no to the antibiotics because I'm an idiot, <laughs> um, and the weight cuts ruined me, and I still made the weight, you know, and then in, in Dublin, um, I had a, I had a an issue that put me in the hospital a couple times over the, you know, the, the eight-week camp or whatever it was, um, and, and I don't, you know, need to talk about what it was, but, sure. you know, just something that put me in the hospital <laughs> a couple of days. Um, and no one knows that, but um, then when I got to Ireland, I got food poisoning. And and when, when I was in the hospital, I was throwing up and all that kind of stuff and passing out. Um, so me getting food poisoning on top of that was fucking horrible. Mm. I mean, it was so gnarly um, that, I, I mean, i I thought I was having a stroke. Right. to be honest. There was one point where I was pretty sure I was having a stroke, um, which I obviously didn't, but, and then the, the weight got horrible. Uh, I, I woke up this morning at one thirty four. Wow. So in my old age, I am being much more smart about this. <laughs> you know, it used to be the bigger, the, the bigger, the better and all this stuff. And I, I feel better, lighter, I'm faster. You know, I, I think I put on too much weight for a while. And, uh, you know, I, I'm fighting a 115 pounder, hmm. so I know he's going to be fast and small. and not cut that much weight, so I had to, you know, get my weight as low as possible. And you know, health is, is the is the like the the point of my life at this at, at this time. You know, my girlfriend has epilepsy, my daughter has rheumatoid arthritis. I'm a, I know, you know, I'm the, the stronghold in the family, I guess, with all my injuries. But you know, so we have a very, very, very healthy lifestyle. Very healthy. So. You know, I, I guess it's just the way it goes and I've learned a lot of things and done my due diligence on you know, diseases like whether it's uh cerebral palitary that my girlfriend runs or epilepsy that she has or RA or whatever. Uh, you know, I just educated myself uh, and talked to extremely smart people, doctors and scientists and stuff about you know, all about, about learning and about that, that kind of things and and it's it's very very, very interesting. Um
0: and, you know it's what I had to do mm. that's well that it's, it's it's great to hear that you know you've got that type of emphasis on, on health um, in your life right now I, I you know I kind of I kind of transitioned to something else I wanted to ask you about which is I guess your mind state so I, just just reading other interviews you've done Ian uh, like I just read a um, uh, great story Kevin I really did talking with you. And, you, you talked about still wanting to make a, a title run, which, of, of course, that makes sense. You're still one of the best fighters in the world, pound for pound. Um, and you had such great, close, and you know, in some cases, uh, controversial fights with, with the current champion. Uh, but I've also heard you not very long ago talk about hey if, if maybe if I sustain another big injury I, I might retire is that it seems like an interesting place to be at like mentally right to be like hey I'm so conscious of my health that retirement is even a concept in my in my head uh, and also but I know I'm good enough to, to be in it and I'm fighting again and, and let's let's try to make another title run is there is there a tension there is that is that a is that something that you that you yourself are surprised that you can kind of balance in your head?
1: Uh, no. You know, I've been through so much adversity in my life. Um, it, you know, it's uh, I, I just I'm a realist. You know, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and lie to myself. And I promised my family that if I have one more surgery, I'm done. You know, I've had seven seven parts of my body surgically worked on since since being in the UFC. Wow. You know, my hand three times, four parts of my shoulder. Um, you know, like when I had my shoulder done, it was partially torn bicep muscle, fully torn bicep tendon, two label tears, a fully torn rotator cuff. You know, if anyone knows what my hand looks like at this point in my career, it's I have a mangled paw and I, I still have to punch people with it. You know, I punch people with it and it fucking swells up and it's a mess, but I, I can still knock people out with
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you say, Ian, you're like since seven surgeries since... You started fighting in the UFC because that's I mean, you, you fought for like what, ten years before you fought in the UFC. So that's that's give some people, yeah. give give fans some, some point of reference here. You know, this you're a young man that has been fighting, I the first fight I see of yours, Ian, I, you you're probably what, eighteen years old, seventeen years old? I don't know if you fought before. That's a that's, yeah. that's, that's a long uh, time. They, they, almost fifteen years. Yeah. Uh, and you know they, they they wanted me to fight King
1: of the Cage at sixteen because wow. you, could, you could do it back then yep yep. you know um, and it, I mean it never never happened um, What for whatever reason or not but I'm happy I didn't do it to be honest uh, I, I wasn't ready at 16 to fight a man hmm. at 18 it worked out you know uh, and it's worked out since but you know I'm 32 I've been through so much uh, my life outside of fighting is is awesome I finally have a stable relationship and i own a house and and i do you know i have all this good stuff in my life <laughs> so you know i own businesses and i'm starting new ones you know uh that have potential to make me uh you know very wealthy um but that's because i'm smart you know i know i play up kind of being a dummy and a douchebag sometimes but <laughs> i'm not an idiot you know <laughs> i'm not i'm not that stupid so <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it, it, if fighting falls by the wayside, I get hurt again or whatever, then okay, it's I've done enough in the sport. I'm a fucking pioneer, and I'm I I'm okay with that, you know. But of course, I know I'm good enough, uh, and I know I'm physically capable of still going for a title run, winning a title, you know. And realistically, making making some fucking money, some real money.
0: Yeah, I, you've been open about talking about that, but 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 with the money now. Let's, again, let's just take, let's not even talk WEC, which we should. Let's not even talk about your career before that, which we should. But let's just take the UFC for, for you fans. The, let's, let's look at it this way. The entire history of this division in the UFC, once the UFC became smart enough to, to have a flyweight division and bring over, uh, like, basically their lineal championship over to, the, to their promotion, that entire time uh, you've been contending for the title uh, and been at the at the top of the ranks, right? So let's let's you know, if we look at other sports and we say who are the top five or ten? Heck, who are the top fifteen quarterbacks or running backs in the NFL? Or, you know, like and let's look at the money they're making and let's compare that to another sport, MMA, which is also on Fox and also on NBC and whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and look at what the top five guys in each division are making, or let's just say the top ten people in all divisions put together. And what you're saying, Ian, just again, we have we have a wider audience here. I've You know, I've uh, been covering the sport for a while, but a lot of folks are new to MMA. What you're trying to explain to them is, hey, actually, we don't get paid uh, like other athletes who compete <laughs> on national television?
1: Oh, man. We, we don't get paid anything, you know, and uh, it, it's really interesting because I literally just got an offer in Russia. For six figures,
0: wow!
1: And <laughs> if I got a fifty thousand dollars bonus on top of what I make now, I'm still not going to make a hundred grand. Wow! You know, so that that just goes to show you that this that, the state of pay. You know, granted I have a really old contract, um, you know, and, and I, I hope I can renew that soon with the UFC because I don't want to fight anywhere else. But if if a random company around the world is offering me six figures to fight, I will leave the UFC. I like money, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and I don't have that much longer. I don't have that much longer in this sport, you know. Sure, all the best guys in the world are in the UFC. I, I, I don't really want to compete anywhere else, but you know, it, it, if the money makes way more sense somewhere else, I'm going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit.
0: Would you have to wait? Do you feel until like your current contract is over, or do you think you have <laughs> options to like if you couldn't renegotiate um, to go?
1: I think I have I have options after this fight, but to to, to get it done. Um, sorry, I put you on speakerphone real quick oh, no I'm worries. at Ground Zero, uh,
0: and I am just
1: videotaping.
0: So you are I mean, Ground man, z- Ground
1: Zero is amazing.
0: Why is this your first time there?
1: Yeah, I've never never been to Ground Zero before, and it really is awesome.
0: I've never been either. What's it look like? What are you seeing right now?
1: Um, it is a giant gaping hole in the ground. It's not like in any... here Yeah, they uh. The whole big water feature hmm. is really, really pretty. Oh. I, I don't know where all that water goes, <laughs> but uh, that's a big hole in the ground, Jesus.
0: Um, I've seen um, pictures, it looks impressive you know, from photos, is it pretty amazing in person?
1: Yeah, and just the sheer size of it and to really know what happened here, you know, I'm, I'm a really proud American. Like, if, Even with all the, the way the, <laughs> the shit show that's going on, we got a fucking clown for a president, Yep. Um, you know, like it's pretty silly, but you know, you have like role models like Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. Like, I'm sorry, but as a father, that's not acceptable to me. Mm. Um, and granted, you know, I, I, if I voted, I would have voted for Trump. Um, but that's for financial reasons, it's not for anything else. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, that where I come from, he's it, a much better financial person than uh, having Hillary in there, but you know. Or Bernie, or it, it's just simple things like that, you know. Um, so I don't know, you know. Uh, to see this type of thing is is really is incredible. Uh, it, you know, to think of and the stories I've heard from my friends. I have a friend that uh, Paul Gomez, he runs uh, Progenics now, and used to run Hurley. He was here. He was in New York when it happened, I and mean, he he had just helped release uh, uh, Slayer God hates us all.
2: Wow.
1: <laughs> and and I had a lot of friends in the music industry, and uh, they he said he, he after it fell, he walked out of the building, and there's all the smoke and dust everywhere, and there's just Slayer posters everywhere saying "God hates us all." Like how fucking rock and roll is that? You know, I mean, for for such a crazy bad situation, that's gotta fuck with your head. Hmm. You know, I mean, like, and then of course it was just an album, but I mean, it, it, and just to sheer matt I've heard from. I had one friend who was on a Mormon a Mormon mission. I have friends of all walks of life. Um, cool. A Mormon mission that was out here. And, uh, you know, whether they're Muslim or Mormon or whatever, or doesn't matter, I don't give a shit. He friends with everybody. Um, but he told me about when he was on his mission, he was in Spanish Harlem when it happened. And, I mean, it, it made him leave. It made him leave Mormonism. Just to see what he saw and the help he had to help people with. It's like, it, it, something like this really brought our country together. And, and I'm... I'm hoping that, that we can figure out something that doesn't have to happen like this again, you know, we can, we can all get together and, you know, act like we should. I don't know. It's, it's, it really makes me think, I guess.
0: I can only imagine, man. I, uh, I'll let you go in, in a moment, but you know, this, this conversation, and thanks for sharing your thoughts now, as you're there at uh, the ground zero in, in New York with us. That's, I appreciate that. That and, and just the, the stuff you were saying earlier too, just about valuing health or, Knowing what's important and and just the place you are in your life, I mean, I, I I don't I don't know you and I don't know you know how your how your outlook on life has maybe changed since you were younger and stuff. But you started this journey in in in, in martial arts and even in professional fighting as a kid, right? And you made yourself into a man. Yeah, so like it is. I don't know if you fight for different reasons than you used to, or if it's the same. But I am I am curious as as to like how. Where you are mentally right now uh, has or has not affected the way you train. You know, being a dad, uh, be, having other businesses—is that a good thing because it makes you feel secure? Is it a tough thing to stay hungry? Like, where are you at with that?
1: Oh man, it's not—it's not tough to stay hungry. You know, I I, I I love what I do for a living, and uh, you know, it's—it's—it's—I—I um, it's, I fight because I like to fight. That, that's it. And I've, I've always been in this fight my whole life since I was in kindergarten. I was beating people up. You know, mm-hmm. like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so we're taking group shots down here. and, and um, But, uh, you know, it, it, I fight because I like it. Uh, this is what I've always wanted to do in my life. And I get to fight for UFC, mm-hmm. I get to fight for the, the the greatest sporting event on the fucking planet. You know, it, it's amazing. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just happy to be here. Happy to
0: be able to still do this, you know? Well, Ian, we're, we're so happy to have you on the show, man. So a few days and hours before the fight. Literally get on with your day. Best of luck with, with everything that you got coming up. We'd love to have you on again afterwards. Uh, Ian McCall fights UFC 208 against Jared Brooks. you got to watch this man fight. If you're brand new to the sport, he hasn't fought in a couple years, uh, you got to watch this guy fight. Ian, thanks so much for the time, brother. Thank you. So that was a that was a real pleasure. We we had it last week, and we had it um, we had it again this week where we have a fighter who's just days away from a fight. And this is not just a basketball game, you know, as, as pressure-packed as any competition is for any professional athlete, because it means so much to their livelihood. Um, fighting is a is a particular thing. One, they don't have the guaranteed money of other sports. We talked a little bit about that. Two, you've got if you if you mess up in fighting. Uh, you might you might wake up looking at the lights right you might make you might wake up uh, in, in a surgical bed and they they're, 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 they just repaired your knee. There's, there's real stakes in fighting. So the point is there's a lot of stress leading up to up to fights. For guys like Ian McCall to take time when they when they're getting ready for a fight, uh, especially him just being two years without a fight, going two years without a fight through various mishaps, his being sick twice, really sick twice, opponents pulling out twice. Uh, two other times. That's just uh, very impressive. We really appreciate the time. And yeah, you really got to watch this fight. He's, Ian McCall is one of the longtime best fighters in the world at, at uh, 125. And this, this young man who's making his debut that he's fighting, uh, making his UFC debut that he's fighting, Jerry Brooks, uh, is by all accounts a real rising star. Uh, really, really good kid. He might be a little undersized for the weight class, uh, but he is fast. He is a great athlete. He's out of Iowa. Um, one way or the other, it's going to be a great fight. We certainly wish uh, both men health and uh, we wish uh, Ian McCall the, the best in that and look forward to talking with him afterwards. We're going to move along and we we'll next have on our list Ben Velasquez. Ben is a strength and conditioning coach and he's worked with uh, a lot of athletes, professional down to, to prep level and uh, he's also begun to work with some fighters and his particular focus that got me interested in is in uh, neural health and, and post post-concussion syndrome treatment. Uh, It's not something that I'm real educated. I'm not a scientist, uh, but I want to get Ben Velasquez's take on that. I'm going to see if he's available here. We'll give him a ring just a moment. Hello, this is Ben. Hey, Ben. This is Elias with uh, Extra Rounds Podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing really well, Elias. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. We do uh, In this modern digital age, a lot of these first-time meetings happen over phone, right? Uh, it's kind of a weird thing, but we're super stoked to have you on uh, on the show today. Um, you know, I've been reading a bit about you, and uh, I've seen you quoted by um, colleagues, uh, by scientists, and, and you work in all sorts of sports, it seems like, with all sorts of athletes, but I know you've been working with, with fighters as well. I read that you work with uh, Timothy Bradley, who's a uh, former world champion Walter uh, welterweight. You work with Chris Weidman uh, there in New York, yeah. who's also a former uh, UFC champion. So that that's, yeah. that's going to be a particular interest to a lot of our, our, our listeners. Um, I want to I want to jump in right away. I had a bunch of stuff I was kind of curious to pick your brain about, and I'm sure we'll have to have you on again to do more of this, mm-hmm. but... Um, Uh, One thing I picked up on um, was about, in layman's terms, athletes being rushed back out into the field, the court, or or in the ring maybe a little bit too soon. So I I want to pose this to you, and you tell me if if this is true, if it's not, or give me your take on it. But um, why and how are athletes sent back into training or even competition, Ben, by doctors after they've been examined, had some tests done on them, when they may not be ready? from a neurological standpoint, from a brain health standpoint? Because if I read some of your research and, and your quotes mm-hmm. correctly, that is happening. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's still happening. It's not just happening in the fighting sports. It's happening in other, you know, contact sports uh, where the athletes are allowed to go back in, specifically after the event, which, you know, is the concussion has occurred. Um, I think the biggest reason for that is that uh, right now, the medical staff is still relying on their own, uh, best guess, uh, at the, at the time of the event, um, based on what information that they have in front of them. And generally speaking, that information is if you, Elias, get you know, concussed on the field and I'm a doctor, then I can do certain really preliminary uh, neurological tests on the sidelines. I can also do neurocognitive tests, which are basically psychological tests that answer a bunch of questions. And then I have to rely on you giving me feedback whether or not there are symptoms that I'm concerned about. So sometimes all those things come back negative, but yet the athlete is still not ready to go out on the field. So they may have no symptoms. They may um, uh, uh, be satisfy the medical um, uh, person's evaluation on the field or in the game of play. And they may also do um, fairly well on the neurocognitive stuff that they make them do that, but yet they're not ready to go on.
0: How do you determine that? How do you end up realizing in your experiences that, that these guys and gals weren't in fact ready. What 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 other tests or just what performance indicators kind of present themselves in your experience?
2: Um, well, you know, in the in the more sophisticated programs, institutions, uh, professional organizations, they're starting to use more imaging now. So in certain cases, they have baseline imaging on the athletes before the event, and um, they'll take imaging afterwards and realize that, yeah, you know, that athlete uh, um, quantifiably doesn't look the same um, before and after the event, even though everything else is satisfied. Um, In other cases, the athlete will suffer a second or a third or a fourth concussion more easily with very little or no contact, which is an indicator that they hadn't recovered from the initial event or a previous concussion,
0: you know that's uh, the healing, the brain healing is something I want to I want to ask you to dig into a little bit more because it's something that I've um, had a lot of questions about. But first, I want to ask you: you know, is is part of the is part of the the problem of athletes being sent out uh, back into training or competition before they're ready? Do you think part of that is a is a cultural thing, or do you think part of that is maybe a conflict of interest thing? Where if it's, um, let's say it's professional sports, the doctor mm-hmm. that an athlete might be seeing works for the team. The team, as a mm-hmm. business operation, has certain interests, uh, and those interests usually involve, you know, winning games and and not necessarily if they have to choose between one or the other. Not necessarily having to do with the long term health of an athlete, do you think there's a culture, broadly speaking, in sports uh, as well that kind of contributes to athletes being being pushed, and do you think also maybe the business of sports kind of uh, pushes uh, guys and gals back out there a little bit too fast because the doctors they're seeing are not like their own personal doctor that's in the family and known them since they were three, but rather working for the organization that employs them?
1: Yeah, that's a really good
2: point, um, Elias. Um, It's really a two-part answer. Part one uh, of the answer is yes. You know, um, generally speaking, in pro sports, and it's changing a little bit, but you know, if you take sports like baseball and football and hockey and soccer, generally the medical staff, um, it used to be a practice and it it is still occurring where medical staff pays to be associated with the team. So the hospital or the medical doctor will pay to be an affiliated medical team doctor. Wow. So, um, they yeah, so there's a conflict of interest from that standpoint. Um, and then secondly, if they work, if they actually work for the team, then you're right. They have the pressure of making a decision um, that health-related for the athlete um, and having the pressure of the organization that relies on them to keep the athletes on the field and has basically an asset that they're paying a lot of money to on the field that, um, in their eyes, it's not like having a torn ACL, right? It's, you know, it's the guy, the guy can walk around and seems fine, but, you know, there's that, there, it's not evident to the public that they're hurt. Um, uh, only in some cases it is. So, and then part two of that is that, you know, this is an area that although it's in the public limelight right now, um, the research and the information that's coming out is coming out exponentially. And a lot of the medical staff are learning things that they didn't know before, in all fairness to them. They're learning that it's not just one event. It could be a series of multiple repetitive hits that, Cause a bigger danger to the athlete than that one knockout punch where they're you know they're knocked out cold and um, they suffered one bad knockout. It's, it could be just a series of multiple repetitive hits.
0: That, that's it. You saw that is that is that what we've been seeing out there referred to as like subconcussive trauma?
2: Yes, that's what they're calling subconcussive trauma, and they're doing a ton of research into that or what they call repetitive hits mm. um, where um, the the athlete may be for all intents and purposes have none of the classical symptoms that the medical doctors look for um, or that the trainers or the coaches or the athletic trainers are trained or, or a fighter's corner is, look, is trained to look for, you know, dizziness and nausea and um, balance problems. Those may all be fine, but a series of these repetitive hits may be doing a lot more damage to the athlete than than that one event.
0: And what... do? How much can people... I mean, we, we had two different things, I guess, to say, even if we were to just be real simplistic. We have these repetitive, you know, cumulative stuff, uh, type of uh, trauma, then we have, like, you know, the one big, like you said, like a knockout punch or something. Uh, with any yeah. of those or with, with one of them, I mean, is there any... I, I guess I'm kind of curious. When the brain gets bruised when someone gets a concussion is there any Uh, does it ever fully heal is there anything that could be done for it to to fully heal or is there some part of you that never you never get back
2: well uh yeah that's that's uh that's what they're researching now so they're researching both the long-term damage and the short-term damage you know what we do know is the body and and the brain are, are amazing and they're they're incredible at at um Going back to what we call homeostasis or balance, so, you know, utilizing a certain part of your brain to kind of pick up the slack for another part of your brain that is, um, that is, that is damaged, you know, even on a microscopic level. Um, But yeah, the the body's amazing and it'll heal itself. What's unknown is at what's the tipping point. So how much damage can you actually sustain as a football player or a soccer player or a hockey player before you can't recover that um, anymore? And that's unknown right now, they're not sure. Thing. They can identify the damage on imaging, they can identify, you know, the areas that are damaged and associated with, you know, physical and um, psychological issues, but they don't know what that tipping point is, what's too much and, you know, and when that happens and can you
0: recover that. That's really fascinating. I, one idea that I kind of picked up in, in reading a tiny bit uh, in preparation to have you on, uh, Ben, where I'm with Ben Velasquez here talking about, among other things, concussions and, and neural health, I, this idea that athletes who have had concussions might be more susceptible to other seemingly to a layperson like myself non-related injuries like a hip injury or a knee injury. Is that true, or if you've had a concussion, is there any type of for any period of time like risk added risk for other injuries injuring other parts of your body, and why?
2: Uh, Yeah, so there's one study that was done on lower the potential for lower body injuries. That means you know everything from a sprained ankle to an ACL to a hip labrum post concussion. And um, don't quote me on this, but I believe that that one study showed that with one or more concussions that were documented, the athlete had um, up to three times more likelihood or um, risk factor of suffering a lower body injury. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of where I come in, I think um, is my specialty is more than mechanical. Hmm. So um, the easiest way for a layperson to understand that is that um, your head is connected to the rest of your body. So if you have to compensate somehow um, above the shoulders because you uh, suffered a concussion and it wasn't rehabbed properly or um, rehabbed at all, um, then the rest of your body below your shoulders is going to develop structural imbalances and compensatory patterns to try to you know to compensate. And athletes are really good cheaters, so you might hold your head a certain way, and when you hold your head a certain way. You're, you're, you're holding your shoulders a certain way, and your pelvis is compensating because of your scapular girdle, and when your pelvis compensates and you're running, you're making yourself more susceptible to an ACL because of the stresses on the knee. So it's, it's, it's thinking in global terms. You know, that old nursery rhyme, the, the, the ankle bones connected to the shin bones, connected to the knee bone,
0: um, that's true that's fascinating so when when did you start as a, as a trainer when did you start realizing like hey concussion stuff affects my work and affects you know is affecting the, the people I'm working with like when did you start basically working on this as well because uh, hey I mean I, I know some phenomenal uh, trainers I know some phenomenal physical therapists and uh, mm-hmm. you know even sports medicine uh, folks and you know most of them aren't talking about concussions and this kind of a comprehensive or integrated uh, approach? Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, you know, um, my background is in engineering, my undergraduate's in engineering, and so I went, I kind of evolved from doing uh, more traditional strength and conditioning work with athletes to. Realizing that there was no such thing as a healthy athlete, and um, doing more what I call, you know, performance rehabilitation with them, which was this kind of advanced rehab work with them. And then about three years ago, I realized that a huge percentage of the athletes that were coming in for orthopedic injuries, just stuff that they had, um, had suffered one or more concussions. So I decided to kind of look at this thing. Aspect of it to kind of reverse engineer it and think, okay, how can I help these guys that are going to play contact sports, are going to participate in, you know, MMA, are going to, you know, box? Um, how do you protect them, and also how do you help rehab them from a mechanical standpoint when they've already suffered a concussion?
0: And 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 I know this. Format in this time does can't allow you to do justice to it, Ben. But what type of what type of work you, uh, do you do with, with with athletes in order to to make sure that happens? So, like when you know, what type of work did you do, for example, with uh, Chris Weidman or any athletes really that you like? What what type of stuff just to for uh, for listeners to get and viewers to get a sense of it? Like, what type of work are you mm-hmm. doing that that may be new to them in, in concept?
2: Uh, yeah, so I only I only worked with Chris a couple of times a few summers ago, and it was more for a few orthopedic issues that he had. But um, wonderful guy, great athlete. Um, with Tim Bradley, it was more after the Provodnikov fight, and that was a bad concussion. And so um, it was a combination of um, my worked with several doctors around the country. Um, some that specialize in the biochemical aspect, so they fix the nutrition, they do all blood work, because there's a huge um, component there. Then I work with a couple of guys that do all the soft tissue work. So they treat the athlete, make sure that, you know, the soft tissue is, is what it's supposed to be. And then from a mechanical standpoint, with a guy like that, we worked a lot on um, postural exercises. So we worked a lot on reestablishing very good posture and what I mean by that is not your typical well your mom says hey sit up straight um, working on you know um, certain uh, elements of the spine and the neck that are critical um, for posture and critical for letting the brain know where the athlete is in space so that when you get thrown or when you get hit um, how do you accept the force and how do you dissipate the force?
0: Very, very fascinating, and I i know it could only be a snapshot. Um, you know, Ben, we're going to have to have you on again, man. This has been a really, uh, really interesting talk. I want to get more of your own personal story in as well. So, if you—if you'll—if mm-hmm. you'll allow us, we'll—we'll we'll have to bug you and have you on again in, in the coming months.
2: Anytime, anytime. Just look, give me advance notice, and I'll jump on. And the beauty about this subject mm-hmm. is that it's constantly evolving because mm-hmm. we're. You know, we're learning so much, it's it's really hard for someone to go academically or in the lab and, you know, you're not going to concuss athletes. So we're really learning from people like myself and my colleagues that are actually working with athletes.
0: And where, uh, before I let you go, where can, can people go to learn more about you, more about your work, Ben?
2: Um, So my website's really easy, it's benvelasquez.com, and that's Velasquez with... Um, with Z and no S and um, on Instagram it's BZ in NYC and on Twitter it's at bvelaz one uh, so you can find me there you can message me out there if you're interested in, in something and you know I look forward to being on again
0: well Ben Velasquez thanks so much for taking the time you have it was, it was really uh, really enlightening really fascinating to get to talk to you I know there's going to be much more to talk with, uh, about with you in the future have a great rest of the mm-hmm. week brother
2: Thank
0: you. You too. Take care. So we were just on with Ben Velasquez, a, uh, a trainer who I'm, I'm putting it, I'm sure, really unsophisticated in a sophisticated way, but he's, he's, he's much more aware of uh, neural health and brain health uh, with his athletes than, uh, than a lot of others are out there. Uh, very interesting to talk to him. I tell you, these, these conversations, you know, Jim Freeman, a, a listener and viewer from earlier, started talking about, uh, about f- what we can do in conversation and rules to, to make fighting less brutal, you know, safer. Uh, we need to have these types of conversations. You know, the science, the science needs to develop, and then when it does, we need to, we need to have access and give publicity to that science and, and the practice out there. Um, really interesting stuff. You know, there's certain things you can and certain things you can't do, right? <laughs> when things are difficult, really, really dangerous in a free society. I, think you, I don't think you can ban or you, one sh, you know, society should ban dangerous work or dangerous leisure or de- activities or dangerous sport activities um, among consenting adults. So we got football, uh, a brutal sport, in which I love loved to watch. And we've got prize fighting which is probably not as bad for you as as football but it certainly uh, takes its toll um and uh you know we have these things and there's a there's a, a beautiful brutality to them sometimes it's complimentary sometimes the beauty and the brutality are at odds at, uh, at the very least we can do is try to get the best information we can to athletes so they can make uh, the best decisions for themselves in training and and in competition in their lives and in their careers. It was really great getting to talk with Ben Velasquez. It was really awesome getting to talk with Ian McCall who seems so so aware, so conscious of health uh, these days and of, of happiness and life after fighting even as he continues to love uh, this sport that he's been involved in professionally since he was literally a teenager, literally a, a child. Um, it, it's cool. It's a lot of good conversations. I know uh, Mike Dice is having some really good conversations out east at the site of UFC 208 in Brooklyn, uh, New York. So stay tuned to Fansighted and uh, Sports Illustrated. dot um, com for for all of his all of his great content that's coming out this week. We'll all their coverage uh, this coming weekend, and uh, I know he's he's recorded a. a Few, more than a few really cool interviews uh, even last week in Houston that we're going to upload on iTunes. You can always check us there, um, Extra Rounds Podcast, and iTunes if you listen to iTunes. And if you like the show, give us a five-star rating there. It helps us a ton. Uh, if you like watching the video live, please continue to do so on the Sports Illustrated MMA Facebook page. Share it with your with your homies. You can share this link and the, the embedded code all week long. If you don't get to watch it live, you can also... Um, download the podcast and subscribing is a good way to make sure you don't miss any of them at the Google Play Store, any other, most other uh, uh, podcast apps as well. So again, I've uh, been to Leah Cepeda here, um, not solo with our producer Richard Durante, but without our co-host Mike Dice, who quote me on this. I'm going to say it again. I think Mike is back next week. I could be wrong. Uh, I live things day by day a little bit too much, but uh, I've been missing them. Uh, luckily, had some, some really good guests these, these past two weeks to to keep me company. On behalf of everyone, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing and writing in your questions. Please continue to write. Call us with your questions. You can call in. Leave us a message at 815-570-3923. You can write us at the Extra Rounds Podcast at gmail.com. You can check us out on Twitter at Extra Rounds. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week. Enjoy the fights. See you next week.